Oh, my God. 
Five minutes after 6 a.m., uh, this is a uh, JM in the AM Thursday morning edition. Today is Tisha B'Av. We do not greet people or use the traditional morning and daily greetings. It is Tisha B'Av. All the restrictions of the day apply. We don't eat or drink today. We don't wash our hands the way we normally do today. And all the uh, different restrictions of the day are in place until tonight. Uh, we will have a special live Kinos service starting at 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time right here with Rabbi Goldwasser on JM in the AM. We invite all of you to participate. That's coming up at uh, 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time, especially for those who are not able to make it to synagogue today. It's a very good way to spend some time early Tisha B'Av morning. Um, appropriately, Rabbi Beryl Wine's lectures today will deal with Eicha and Kinnis, and we'll start with the Eicha overview on this Tisha B'Av morning at JM in the AM. The book of Eicha is read on the night of Tisha B'Av as part of the synagogue service. There is a custom in certain communities that it is read during the day of Tisha B'Av as well, but that's not a universal custom. It's not part of the uh, usual morning service. The Book of Eicha is uh, translated in English as Lamentations because uh, basically it laments the, uh, the destruction of the Jewish national state, of the temple, and of the uh, fate that befell the Jewish people during the times of the destruction of the temples. The book of Eicha is attributed to the Novi Yermio. He's the author. And according to our tradition, the book was written not as a reaction to the destruction of the temple, but it was written as prophecy before the destruction of the temple. And it was written, uh, so to speak, as a uh, as a warning as to what would happen. According to the Talmud, uh, we read in Tanakh that the uh, king Yehoiakim, there were three brothers that were the last kings of Judah. The uh, great king was Yoshiahu, who was the father of the three brothers. Yoshiahu was righteous, he was a tzaddik, but he uh, disobeyed the advice of the Navi. Uh, he made an alliance and went to war. 
a battle that was uh, really none of his business. And he was killed in the war. And his death, more than anything else, sealed the fate of the first Commonwealth, the first Emperor. And he had three sons, each of whom succeeded the other one. First was Yoachim. When Yoachim died, then Yoachim succeeded. And the third brother, the last king of Judah, Sitiot. Now, Yoachim, the Yermio is alive during the reign of all of these kings. And to put it mildly, he's a pain. They don't know how to deal with him. He's uh, anti-government, as were most of the prophets. And they saw their role as being the moral conscience of the people and not as being a psychophant, someone that agrees with everything that happens. When uh, The, uh, when Yoshiyahu was killed in the war, so the first uh, chapter of Echo, which we have as the fourth chapter, uh, beginning Echo Yuam Zohar, how has gold been tarnished? Yishne Hakesem Hatov, great, uh, wonderful. The era has been desecrated. The holy stones of the high priest were spilled, were spilled as, as though they were garbage, dung on the streets of Jerusalem. That uh, chapter is the Novi's eulogy for the king Yoshio. So even though in our Seder of the Megillah it appears as the fourth chapter, chronologically it's the first chapter. And it deals with the fact that uh, Yoshiohu was killed in the war, the great righteous king, the one last hope of Israel, so to speak, because he was the one who could have turned the situation around. And when he was killed, so then uh, there was no one to really take up the cudgel anymore uh, for uh, Jewish tradition or holiness uh, to fight against the corruption that was rampant in the country. And therefore, this is the first chapter chronologically, even though it's the fourth chapter that we have in the book. So he had this chapter, and then he wrote uh, the first chapter, Echo Yoshva, and then he wrote the second chapter, Echo Yoiv. Those three chapters form the original Megillah of Echo. This original Megillah of Echo was considered so subversive because, again, it's not a reaction to the destruction of the temple, it's a prophecy. It's a prophecy that the government's going to fall, uh, that the Babylonians will conquer the country. 
the temple will be burned, the Jewish people are going to be taken into exile. No government likes such prophecies. And therefore, in an act of uh, censorship, uh, the king, Yehoiakim, burned the Megillah. We read about it in the uh, book of Malachim, in the book of Kings, that he took the Megillah that Yermio wrote, and he threw it on the fire to burn it. So those were the first, the first two chapters, plus the fourth chapter, which is the uh, eulogy regarding the death of King Yoshio. Then, uh, since Yermio uh, didn't keep quiet, but publicly preached in the streets of Jerusalem, uh, this message uh, that the destruction was about to happen, so he was arrested and placed in a dungeon, placed in prison. Anyone who thinks that it's a fun job being a prophet for the Jewish people uh, should reconsider that notion. The Jewish people are a tough people, toughest people in the world. We wouldn't be here if we wouldn't be so tough. But because we are so tough, it's hard to deal with them. Hard to be a rabbi for them. Hard to be a teacher for them. Hard to run a government for them. Menachem Begin said that the uh, last government in the land of Israel that uh, Haaretz newspaper approved of was the British Mandate. <laughs> and that pretty much sums it up. So he's thrown into jail. He's in the dungeon. Now you can see the dungeon. I don't know if you want to see the dungeon, but you can see it. It's the Chatzera Matara, uh, which is in East Jerusalem. I've been there a number of times. Today it's a banana market because our cousins have a great sense of history. And they, uh, you know, they preserve things. So today it's the major banana market. Bananas are stored in this cave which leads down to the dungeon. But that was the dungeon in which the prophet Yermio was placed. And he was imprisoned for a number of years until he was really freed by the Babylonians who destroyed the city and ruled everybody in jail. Much as the Americans did in Iraq. In the dungeon, he wrote the third chapter of the book. So I am the person who has seen affliction. I have been punished. I would have been led in darkness and not in light because the dungeon was a dark place. Yermio had a disciple of Koruch ben Meiria. Koruch ben Meiria would later be the teacher of Ezra. So Baruch is the uh, bridge between the first temple and the second temple. And he was a great man. And much of what we know about the Novi, we know through 
Baruch ben who helped edit the book of Eicha and helped edit the book of Yirmiyo as well. And he would visit him in the dungeon, and according to some opinions in our tradition, uh, he took the dictation from the Navi, uh, which forms this third chapter. So now we've spoken about four of the five chapters. The fifth chapter, the last chapter, which is different than all the other chapters, because the first four chapters all are in alphabetical order. The acrostic follows the alphabet. Eicha is Aleph, follows every posseh. Boch of Sivke, Golza, Yehuda, It is written 22 psukim following the alphabet. But the last chapter, and the third chapter, Aniyah Gever, one written in jail, is a triple alphabet. 66 psukis, uh, three times Aleph, three times Bet, three times Gimel, etc. Uh, there, there are many reasons why uh, we have uh, things written according to the acrostic of the alphabet. Gemara uh, discusses, for instance, uh, why Ashrei is the standard prayer, the prayer that we say three times a day. Why was that chapter of Tehillim chosen? The more advances two reasons, more abroad. One reason is because it follows the alphabet. It follows the alphabet. Good old which the more discusses. But uh, it follows the alphabet. The other reason is because it has the exalted posseh of Hosea Chesyodecha, who must be on the whole That God sustains every creature. One of the wonders of our world, of nature, God, is the way every creature is sustained in the food chain. It's only when man interferes that there are problems. It was just in the Canadian Rockies, right? He watched the eagles fish in the morning. They have salmon for breakfast. And when the eagle is done, then the bears come down to the river, and they catch salmon. The salmon, in turn, feed on smaller fish, which in turn feed on algae, which in turn feed on... uh, other things, it's a whole, it's, it's, it's magic. To say that all of that happens at random, you really have to be a true believer. I say that the, those who don't believe, believe much more firmly than those who do believe. Because you really have to believe. So uh, you have uh, this great verse that symbolizes God's control over this world, the Poseach es Yadecha, God, so to speak, opens his hand. He must be on the whole high, and every living thing in the world has its sustenance from God's hand. So we think that we eat from the supermarket. But we eat from God's hand. Rotso, and the Lord does it, so to speak, out of goodwill. Voluntarily, as an act of grace to sustain life. 
that opens us up to the great question, I mean, what does God need all of this for, right? But a mildly, we are nudnicks. So what does he need it all for? Now that's God's problem, not mine. But we see from the Gomorrah that verses that are written in alphabetical order, so to speak, have a unique and special quality. The simple explanation is because it's easy to memorize that way. Our associative memory, all of Torah is based on associative memory. All of Talmud is based on associative memory. You'll see many times in the Gemara, the Gemara will say, Rovo will say something. And then all of a sudden the Gemara will go off on a tangent and discuss 15 other subjects, and what unites it is the fact that Rovo said them all. It's not the subject matter, it's because it clicked in, in the brain, Rovo, oh yeah, Rovo said this too, Rovo said that too, he said this too. The entire Talmud, the Torah Shabbat is associative memory ability to put things together. So the olive base is the key to associative memory. So if I get it in. So in Yiddish there was a phrase that he knew something the way a Jew knows Ashrei. Every Jew knew Ashrei. Why? Because we say three times a day, it goes in alphabetical order. If you lose your way, right? Then you forget so you remember that the next passage starts with a Zion. So you say, Zecher. You flow Zecher. Right? And then you're able to... The mere fact that it's an alphabetical order. So here also, the Novi wanted this to be memorized. He wanted the... In a way, the prophecy was that God knew that uh, we were going to have 2,000 years of troubles, and this book would last... Not a book about one occurrence. It's a book about the faith of the Jewish people in history. So therefore, it was written in alphabetical order, so uh, that it would be remembered. I have to also remember that we're talking. Uh, there's no printing press. Having handwritten scrolls is a luxury. Not only handwritten scrolls, I. Uh, I grew up uh, shortly after the American Civil War, so the uh, very few people had a copy of the Talmud in their house. They couldn't afford it. Who had it? My father, Shalimu well, tells me that in his yeshivas in Eastern Europe, when he was a student in Brodnev by Rabshimon Shkod, the yeshiva didn't have a full set, a full set of the Talmud. So what Shimon did is he went around and he took the young men that had the best memories and he had them memorize, memorize an entire tractate of the Talmud so that if you found in Tosfus there was a reference that is Gemara and the Gemara is not on the shelf, so you didn't have to go anywhere, you went to a person and he told you what the Gemara said. That's 1920, that's not 1650. Today, you know, every bar mitzvah kid's got 28, uh, you know, you've got, you got an art school shot, a Steinjelm shot, and this shot, and that shot. 
nothing left for your father-in-law to buy for you. <laughs> you may have to end up just taking the girl. <laughs> Which is the only way to look at it, by the way, my friends. So, uh, he intended that people should know this, and they would have to know it by heart. So therefore, that's the order of the Alambes that exists here. Uh, that four of the five chapters follow the Alambes. The Gemara itself asks that in one chapter, the Tzaddik is before the Pei. It's out of order. The Gemara has a whole drosha about it. Well, the Gemara is interested in text. Basically, the Gemara always is based upon text. What does the text say? And why did they use this word, and why did they use that word? And why is it repeated, and why is it not repeated? And why does it have an extra letter, and why doesn't it have an extra letter? So we are loyal to text. So therefore, in the text, when we see that the olive base is out of order, so then we have to come up with an explanation as to why it is. The fifth chapter it is not in any order. The fifth chapter is written in response to the Hurban. So, uh, therefore, it is to a great extent uh, chaotic. It reflects the trauma. The fifth chapter also has 23, 22 uh, verses to it, rather, but it does not have any alphabetical order to it. And that's the chapter that is in response to uh, the witness chapter, so to speak, in response to the actual destruction that the Navi sees in front of his eyes. Now, the book of Eicha, so this week I'm going to talk to you about Eicha, and next week we'll talk about the Kino, about the additional prayers and poems and analogies that have been written over the centuries. But the book of Eicha is the basis for the Kino. You cannot really understand what the poets who wrote the Kino wanted if you don't understand what the Book of Echo wants. And it's based upon the verses and based upon the language and based upon the ideas and values that are reflected in the book. So the Book of Echo is the keystone. And if uh, for whatever reason a person finds oneself in a position where one cannot recite the keynote, doesn't have a copy of it or something, or it's stuck out somewhere in the wilds. The Book of Echo should be read anyway. But the Book of Echo is the main centerpiece of Tishimov, so to speak. Now, the Novi in the first chapter compares the grandeur of Jerusalem to what happened to Jerusalem. Echo Yashvavodod. The city that was so well populated, the city that was the uh, great city in the world, now sits Bodod, means alone, isolated, forlorn. Nobody there. Now, one of the ideas that we find throughout Tanakh is that the city of Yerushalayim is personified. It's not just streets and stones and buildings. It's an entity. It exists as a soul, as emotion to it. So he says the city, which he will describe later 
as being like a mother whose children have been taken from her, God forbid. So the city weeps. It's not only the people that weep, it's the city that weeps. And one of the uh, strengths of the Jewish people over all the ages was their attachment to Jerusalem, even though they never saw it. And one of the ironies of our time is uh, that there are many Jews who are willing to uh, forego Jerusalem even though they can see it today. Because Jerusalem is a religious idea. It's not a national idea. It's not an idea built upon uh, uh, nationalism, uh, built upon territory. It's a religious idea. The attachment to it is a religious attachment. When the religious attachment is cut, severed, so then eventually uh, the other uh, connections to it also begin to fall. The city is like a widow. As I'll portray a widow, God forbid. So a woman, as long as her husband was alive, so she had station in life also. But now that the husband is dead, and she's alone, so it's very difficult to, for her to have any statement. That's why Chazal said, Ein al meksela leishto, ein isha meksela lebama. Spouse is the one that takes trauma of loss. Children go on. Build their own lives. But the bond, the marriage of the spouses, that is separate. That's the reason why in Havotha, that for parents, children have a one-year mourning period. Whereas for a husband and a wife and other relatives, Morning period is only 30 days. And before she explained, because psychologically, a widow is going to always be a widow, 50 years from now, too. So, therefore, 30 days is sufficient. But children move on. And they would forget completely that their father is gone or that their mother is gone. Therefore, the rabbis imposed, so to speak, a long period of mourning, a year of discipline, so that somehow the parent will still live at least that year in the hearts and minds of his children. There's a Jew by the name of Leon Weisseltyler, who is the literary editor for the New Republic and is a very famous uh, left-wing liberal author and he's a great writer, even though you need uh, the Oxford English Dictionary at your side to read anything that he writes. Now, he wrote a book. Not uh, He was once a student in the yeshiva. In his youth, he comes from a very orthodox family. And he attended the yeshiva in New York, and then he decided that he doesn't want. His father died. He and his father had a very, very strained relationship, but his father remained uh, a Holocaust survivor 
an Eastern European Jew, an observant Jew. And here he has this brilliant son that has gone off. And originally even married a non-Jewish woman. And when his father died, for various reasons, he decided that he would keep the cottage for his father for the entire year. And he joined the Orthodox Synagogue in uh, Washington, D.C., based in Washington. And then he wrote a book about it. The name of the book is Kaddish. It's a fabulous book. First of all, he did research. If you want to know anything about the Kaddish, it's there. Because he has a background. He looked up all the Rishonim, all the Achronim, all the customs, everything. It's all there. But more than that is his personality, his soul, what happened to him. And at the end of the book, if Art Scroll would write it, at the end of the book he would put on a strangle and we would all live happily ever after. <laughs> but that's not the real world. So he doesn't become an observant Jew, but he becomes much more of a Jew. Like all of a sudden, the only way I can phrase it is like he gets it. He understands what it's all about. And afterwards he divorced his non-Jewish wife. And he is uh, much, uh, much more accessible for Jewish things than he was before. But he writes this book, What the Year Did for Him. And, you know, it's uh, for someone who is, for instance, not accustomed to attending synagogue, and now you have the discipline that you have to go to the synagogue every morning and every night for a year, and you're always looking for a minion, and if you take a trip, you have to plan it so that you come to a place that has a place where you can say Kaddish. So that's really, you know, the rabbis really laid it on you. But that's the reason why. He understands that. That's the only way he makes peace with his father. Only way he makes some sort of peace with himself. So that's Hoysok Almona. The city of Jerusalem is a widow. There's a great Sadiq here in Yerushalayim by the name of Rabbi Aryeh Levine. Uh, there's a book about him, Dish Sadiq Oyah, Sukharaz, has been translated into English. He was, you know, Judaism and Jews are two separate things. You should never confuse the two. But sometimes the Lord in every generation provides us with people where the Jew and Judaism are identical. And he was one of those personages. So, uh, the late chief rabbi uh, Isaac Alevi Herzog died. So after he died, Abariye would go every Shabbos in the morning after davening to visit Rabbi Herzog's widow, Rebetzin Herzog. Because as long as the rabbi Herzog was alive, so then hundreds of people would come to the house for Kiddush, the honor of having Kiddush with the chief rabbi. And now, that he's dead, and nobody comes. So if nobody comes, so then every Shabbos he dies again for her. 
So he would organize and bring people every Shabbos for Yiddish by Rebbe and Herzog so that she would have, she would have a sense of uh, continuity. So that's Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim is Hoysaf Almona. It's a widow. Rabosi Bagoyim. A great city amongst the nations of the world. Jerusalem is one of the wonders of the world. And millions of tourists, okay? And in the temple in Jerusalem, there was a concert every day. The museum performed 365 days a year. Shabbos, Yom Kippur. Famous for musical instruments and its choir. People came from all over the world to hear it. Where it says that even in the, at the end of the Second Temple, in the time of Herod the Great, if, they, if the Jews heard about a, uh, a great uh, singer or somebody with a wonderful voice, they would uh, get hold of him. It's like the, uh, the Israeli basketball teams are allowed to have uh, a number of foreigners play for them. So every Israeli black, every Israeli. Uh, basketball team has two or three seven-foot blacks playing for them. Sometimes they really want to have the guy, and they're over the limit already, so they convert him. There's a special uh, basketball rabbinical court. <laughs> Sometimes the converts really mean it. I remember uh, eight, ten years ago here in Arsameach, uh, I gave a lecture, and in front of me was sitting this enormous person, only 300 pounds, I mean like 6'11". He was black, and he was taking notes and everything, you know. Afterwards, he came over to me, and we talked, you know, he was, uh, he was a star center in the University of West Virginia. And, uh, he uh, had a tryout in the NBA. He didn't make it. So he played in the Continental League, and then he was signed by uh, one of the Israeli teams here. And they were over the limit, so they had him converted by some rabbi in America. And then when he came here, he really liked it. And then he, he really converted, and he, he's living in Israel now. Yeah, he's a, he's a full Jew, etc. So they're the same system, you know, like they heard Luciano Pavarotti. Oh, good, we got this. So they went and converted Pavarotti, and they brought him to Jerusalem to sing in the choir. It's a Gomorrah. I'm not making it up. So everybody in the world came here. It was full. And I was saying, we suffer from that now. You know, the, uh, you walk down the hotels in Jerusalem, everything's all empty. Stores are empty, the restaurants are empty. More than anything else, that is played upon our mood. Because then you feel isolated and alone. Nobody comes. And that's his description of Jerusalem. So Rossi Bambinos, the noble woman, because Jerusalem is always feminine. God is masculine, so to speak, throughout the Bible, and Israel, and the Jewish people, and the land of Israel, the people that were always feminine. 
we're the recipients. We're the Makabe. Oiso Mamas. So if there's no enslaved. Oho Sivke Balaima weeps at night. And its tears are never wiped away. That's the imagery. You know, God forbid, you know, you'll have, when you have a child, God forbid the child will cry and holler, etc. So the first thing you do when you comfort the child is you wipe up the child's eyes, you soothe him. But if there's no one to comfort, there's no one to soothe, so then the tears remain. There is no one that is willing to comfort her. Not Kofi Annan, not uh, Moritemos, not all the other great people in the world. Nobody cares. Blow you up left and right. No one cares. Mikol O'Aveho. All of her lovers. The portrait of Israel in the Novi is always that of an unfaithful woman, of a promiscuous woman. We are married, so to speak, to God, the Sinai, but we like to play around. So we have a lot of lovers. And the problem is that Israel took the lovers seriously. They didn't realize it. Just a one-night stand. It doesn't mean anything. And therefore, at the moment of crisis, there's nobody that cares. Mikolo Avel, from all of her lovers, there's nobody that cares about her. All of her friends, they have proved the treacherous. The friends are enemies. So the Novi here, uh, that's the indictment of the society. Trusted in others who really were its enemies and not its friends. Now this verse, to weep at night, is the origin of the ancient Jewish custom called Tikkun Chatzot. Tikkun Chatzot meant that Jews at midnight would gather and mourn over the destruction of the temple and the loss of the land of Israel. So today you don't see it very much, even in uh, even in Haredi circles. I remember my grandfather used to every night have Tikkun Chatzot. Imagine a Jew never slept through a night. I'm at that level too now, but it's a different problem. It has nothing to do with this. Never sleep through a night. Get up. That's what preserved uh, Jerusalem and the land of Israel. It was on that basis that Zionism had a chance. Zionism basically was a religious idea. The moment it lost its attachment to the religion, it began to wane. But if based on this verse, Bocho Sifke Malayla, you will weep at night. 
So the Jewish people had this custom of Tikkun Chatzot. In the middle of the night, to gather to mourn Jerusalem. Golsa Yehuda Meoni, who may Poverty caused Yehuda to go into exile. So there are two kinds of poverty. There's actual poverty. So actual poverty is really a relative thing. There are people today who are poor and with $250 a year they're poor. Because you live in a neighborhood where everybody's making a million dollars a year. My uh, younger days when I was a lawyer, I always drove good cars. I would trade them in. I never had a car more than two years. I became a rabbi, so two things happened. First of all, I couldn't afford it, which probably was the main reason. The second reason is it doesn't look good for a rabbi. Rabbi always uh, has to be a step uh, more conservative, right? So I used to have members in my shul that drove Maseratis and Lexus, etc. I never drove more than a Chevy or a Ford. You have to be careful. Because once you're in the public eye, uh, then it's a different lifestyle completely. But I remember that uh, I always felt good. I had a good car, except that my neighbor always had a better car. So then my car is not a good car. So poverty is relative. But spiritual poverty is absolute. The emptiness inside of a person. Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? What's the meaning of this? How do I deal with life's problems? Because we all get blindsided by life. That's a different poverty. So the poverty here is this double poverty. They were poor because they were envious of others. They never had enough. The rabbi said, Who is a wealthy person, somebody that has a sense of satisfaction, satisfied with what he has. He can say, I have enough. Most people never get to the stage of enough. Shaky Mason has an act in which uh, the Jew builds this uh, 68-room house in the Hamptons in Long Island, and he makes a Hanukkah Sabayas, and everybody comes and, ooh, ah, ah, and then the guy gets up and he says, oh, this is nothing, wait till you see the next one I build. Because this one already is nothing. But that's a different type of poverty. So the Jewish people went into exile because they were not satisfied and because they were spiritually empty. I'm from working too hard. So we're all workaholics. We live in a workaholic world. Everybody takes home work from the office. But we don't have time. We don't have time for ourselves. We don't have time for our family. I remember again that uh, when I became a rabbi and I gave up the law and I became a rabbi in Miami Beach. So uh, my son then was a little boy, he was five or six years old. And uh, I, took, I used to take him to shul with me. And one of the leading members of the congregation asked him, he said, Chaim, what do you want to be when you grow up? 
he said, I want to be a rabbi. So he said, why? He says, because he never has to go to work. Because it's true. I used to come home every day for lunch. I used to come home and do homework with the kids. When I was a lawyer, I used to leave 6 in the morning and come home 10 at night. I went the whole week without seeing them. So, part of the exile is merov apoda. How, do, how does one find the balance? All of Torah is balance. And everybody has to find their own balance. Because my balance is not your balance. Yoshva Bagoyim. It sits amongst the nations of the world, right? They thought, oh, look, we're just like everybody else, right? We're just like Venezuela. And it found no rest there. No satisfaction. The Jewish state is a pariah. The Jewish people are uh, expendable. All those who wanted to pursue her were able to catch her in the narrow places. So Benamitsorim became the description of the three weeks. That's called in Jewish tradition Benamitsorim. Between the narrow places. Tight places where there's no escape, no room to maneuver. The roads of Zion are in mourning. So again, we find the Novi always personifies. We're not talking here about inanimate objects. We're talking about things that somehow have their own personality and their souls. So the roads themselves. Mourn, because there are not those who come to celebrate the holidays, come to walk the road to Jerusalem. All the gates to the city are desolate. The priests, the Kohanim, all are depressed, they all sigh in depression. Anunobi has very little compassion for the priests because he saw them as being corrupt. And we saw in the Haftorah that we read on Shabbat that Anunobi said, The Kohanim never mentioned God's name. They were so busy with the details of the sacrificial Service that they forbid said that God was out of the picture of it. My Rebbe used to say that in back of the Shulchan Aruch is God. Eventually you have to face God. And even though uh, Judaism is a religion of detail and of observance and of punctilious observance, one should never lose sight that we eventually are dealing with God. And that gives us a much broader perspective. Uh, you have to be able to see the forest and not just the trees. You have to have a breadth of vision. Nobody ever talked about God. 
talked about, you know, Shorshanoga to Sapporo, you know, Oxen and, uh, and this thing and that thing, right? How big the history has to be, all of which is important, don't get me wrong. But they never talked about God. And in uh, Jewish education, uh, we could stand an improvement in discussing God, too. Sulosehlenugos, young girls, Jewish young women, are desolate. There's no one to marry them. Men have been taken away. Obviously, the Navi uh, was written before the glorification of the singles culture, which is also destroying the Jewish world. The lack of the ability to commit to something. Every marriage is a risk. girl that you marry isn't going to be the one that you know 20 years down the line. You'll grow and she'll grow. But that's, you know, that's a fun of it. That's how it's supposed to be. Now they have no one to marry. Not only that, unmarried women, especially in ancient times, were fair game for all sorts of sexual abuse and exploitation. The reason that polygamy was allowed in Jewish life, even though it was never really practiced to any great extent, but it was allowed because it, it protected women who otherwise would have no protection. In a time when that was, uh, when it was very, very necessary. Moira tells the story about some one of the Tanoim that he'd been married 30 women because he wanted to get them all out of jail, right? And the only way to get out of jail was they had a husband. So he never lived with them, etc., but, you know, it was allowed because that was, the, that was the vehicle by which they could be saved. The he marvel, and it's bitter. Bitter is a great word because if you ever ate anything bitter or drank something bitter, the taste lingers. There's an aftertaste of bitterness. So here, even after the event, the Himarla is bitter. The bitterness remains. J.M. in the A.M. Tishabov morning and Eicha overview here on uh, J.M. In the AM. Thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. It is a Tisha B'Av morning. We try to give you appropriate programming, especially for those who aren't able to make it to synagogue this morning. We want this to be an experience of uh, some of the sadness, some of the uh, mood of the day of Tisha B'Av. Uh, those who, I mean, th- th- we, we say this sometimes tongue-in-cheek, but to a degree it's true. Those who are uh, in summer camp, during Tisha B'Av, they have a different type of experience, an immersive one, that does really uh, reflect the sadness of the day. Sometimes for those of us who have a um, you know, regular schedule, so to speak, Tisha B'Av starts relatively abruptly for us. All of a sudden, it begins last night with the Sudam of Sekes, with the final meal, with the uh, Mariv service, and then uh, Eicha, 
and a short kinus service in shul. And then, of course, uh, waking up with the restrictions that we have uh, that everybody shares, uh, but uh, sometimes with a difficulty to, um, to get into the proper mood of the day. So we will not be eating or drinking today. We won't be greeting each other. We won't be wearing leather shoes. We won't be washing our hands the way we normally do. Uh, hopefully all of those restrictions will, in fact, give us a, um, an opportunity to understand the gravity of the day and to uh, observe it with the sadness and mournfulness um, which is required, certainly preferred. Uh, coming up, Rabbi David Goldwasser will join us, our live kiddo service, um, meant for those who aren't able to make it to synagogue today, is going to start at 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time. Um, those of you who are in different parts of the world where it's already the afternoon or evening, uh, you are probably smack in the middle or toward the end of the actual fast. I hope it's going well. I hope the fast is a meaningful one and an easy one. Uh, in this part of the world, the weather doesn't help when it comes to uh, fasting on Tisha B'Av. Today, as you would suspect, is the hottest day of the week so far this week in the New York, New Jersey area, and that's uh, something we've gotten used to over the years. <laughs> that Tisha B'Av should be the hottest and the nine days should be among the hottest weeks of the year. Rabbi Goldwasser coming up at 7.30. A couple of notes. Uh, First of all, a um, reminder that um, what we used to do at the Isaiah Wall across from the UN is now happening virtually. So the Mincha service will be uh, one that you can access as it's happening at... um, as it's happening at... um, Um, one second, just trying to get the information here. As Mincha is happening, uh, there will be a live Zoom that will allow one to, uh, participate in that matter. Um, at 2.45 this afternoon, the, the speakers, here it is, Mincha, I'm sorry it took me so long to find this, Mincha from the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale at 1.45. Speakers include Melech Shechet, the Tzaddik of Lviv, famed Nazi hunter Ephraim Zurov, Ethiopian jury activist Jeremy Fight, back from Ethiopia, Rabbi Avi Weiss, CUNY faculty activist Professor Azriel Ginak. This is all happening at 245, Mincha at 145, and again, instead of the Isaiah Wall, which is where we gathered before COVID, uh, now it's a virtual gathering. Uh, the Zoom meeting ID, you can email me if you want, nachum at nachumsegel.com, and I'll send it to you. Uh, or you can just write it down. The Zoom meeting ID is uh, 833-3853-8948. The passcode is WALL. Again, it's uh, 833-3853-8948. The passcode is WALL. Um, also, if you want to speak to Glenn Richter directly before 145 this afternoon, before Mincha starts, 212 
uh, to speak with him, and he'll certainly pass along to you all the different uh, Zoom meeting IDs, call-in numbers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, it's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program, heard on listener-sponsored digital radio, around the world, the web, and on the Nachum Siegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. A couple of programming notes important to me because um, a lot of people are going to be anxious as Tisha B'Av comes to its conclusion to get back to a regular schedule. Our Erev Shabbos show presented by Kedem and hosted by Mark Zamek is um, pretty amazing for this week. It includes over 100 songs for Nachamu, for the Parsha of the week, for the Haftorah of the week. Uh, it's, a, it's quite a comprehensive show. It'll air at midnight tonight, Eastern Time, which is very good for the people in Israel. They could hear it at 7 a.m. Friday morning. Midnight tonight, and again at 3 a.m. and uh, 10 a.m. on Friday. Presented by Kedem, hosted by Mark Zamek. It's our Erev Shabbos show. For those of you who listen to it and access it through 24-6, it'll be uploaded before the end of the fast. Those of you who listen through 24-6, it'll be uploaded before the fast ends in this part of the world. So keep that in mind. Also tomorrow, Malcolm Honeline, weekly update, and more. Galei Tzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast next. Some call from JMN. לפי החלטת הנסיעה חיות, הרכב השופטים נקבע לפי שיטת הוותק, וכפוף לכך שחמשת השופטים הבכירים בעליון, שמכהנים כחברים בוועדה לבחירת שופטים, או צפויים להצטרף אליה בזמן הקרוב, מנועים מהשתתפות בדיון. כתבתנו לענייני משפט תמר שונמי מוסרת, ששלושת השופטים שידונו בעתירה הם ענת ברון, דוד מינץ ויוסף אלרון. החוק לפיצול תפקיד היועמש. יוזם החוק, חבר הכנסת אלי דלל, הודיע על משיכת החוק בעקבות הצערה. מדווח כתבנו הפוליטי יובל סגב. אחרי שאתמול בלילה הכישו בליכוד כי החוק יקודם ואמרו שהוא הוגש בעבר ועלה למאגר החקיקה באיחור, החוק נמשך רשמית. יוזם החוק אלי דלל אמר כי הוא מקווה שהצדדים ימשיכו לקדם הסכמות וימנעו ממהלכים חד צדדיים. דלל הדגיש שוב כי מדובר היה בטעות וכי כיום אין בכוונתו לקדם את החוק שיפצל את סמכויות התביעה מתפקיד היועמ"ש כפי שרצה במועד הגשתו לפני שבועות. בצל ביטול עילת הסבירות, נציב זכויות האדם של האו"ם, וולקר טורק, מתייחס למחאות בישראל וקרא לממשלה להקשיב למפגינים. מדווח כתבנו המדיני, יניר קוזין. בהודעה כתב נציב זכויות האדם של האו"ם, זה הכרחי שלבית המשפט העליון תינתן החירות המלאה ושיהיה משוחרר מכל לחץ פוליטי כזה או אחר על החלטותיו. הנציב וולקר טורק התייחס גם לתנועת המחאה בישראל ואמר כי צמחה במטרה לשמור על הצביון הדמוקרטי של המדינה וזכויות האדם בה וקרא ליושבים בשלטון להקשיב לקריאות המחאה ולוודא שזכויות האדם נשמרות לכל. מצרים מצטרפת לירדן ולרשות הפלסטינית ומגנה את עליית בן גביר הבוקר להר הבית. מצרים דרשה מישראל לבלום את הצעדים המתגרים והמסלימים הללו. סעודיה גינתה אף היא את המעשה. מהלכים יזומים אלה הם מתקפה ברורה על הערכים והאמנות הבינלאומיות. כך משרד החוץ הסעודי.
גם במשרד החוץ הטורקי גינו את עליית השר וקראו לרשויות בישראל לנקוט צעדים חמורים כדי לרסן את הפרובוקציות ולמנוע הסלמה במתח באזור, כלשונם. ידיעה שמסרו כתבינו ג'קי חוגי ושחר קנוטובסקי. מזג האוויר, שרבי ברוב אזורי הארץ, לעצמים בצום תשעה באב, צום קל ומועיל. אלה החדשות שעורכת נועה מיכאלי. מיד בגלי צה"ל, תוכנית מיוחדת לתשעה באב, בהגשת הדוקטור אלעזר בן לולו. So I go into my uh, rant, my speech now about uh, having a state of Israel and where you tune into one of its national radio broadcasts and they're wishing everybody at Som Kal Umo Il. Um, with, all the, the, uh, with all the dissension and all the um, baseless hatred and maybe not so baseless hatred <laughs> of the last few weeks, uh, it's important to remember that we have a state of Israel, one that we have a... Um, An ability to fight about to argue about to um, struggle with um, or to struggle over I should say but when the push comes to shove or the the bottom line is that uh, we have a state of Israel that we have a national radio program that's acknowledging Shabbos and Yantif that's acknowledging a, a fast of Tisha B'Av It's pretty amazing, something important to keep in mind. Rabbi Goldwasser will join us 25 minutes from now for a live Kinnis service here at JM in the AM, uh, especially for those who are not able to make it to synagogue today. It's quite helpful. Again, Rabbi David Goldwasser, 25 minutes from now here at JM in the AM. Uh, otherwise, of course, appropriate lectures from Rabbi Wine. Programming notes uh, tonight at midnight, the Arab Shabbos show. Presented by Kedem, uh, hosted by Mark Zomek. That'll be replayed at 3 a.m. and 10 a.m. tomorrow. The midnight broadcast tonight is perfect for those in Israel who will hear it at 7 a.m. Israel time tomorrow morning. Over 100 songs having to do with Nachamu, Veschanon, the Haftorah. Pretty amazing. Um, on, and tomorrow morning also uh, Malcolm Honline, Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. He'll join us at 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time for the weekly update. Sunday, we're at Camp Hask for Hask Experience Day. Those of you who are at Experience Day tomorrow, or I should say rather on Sunday, um, you'll see us broadcasting. You'll enjoy the Joey Newcomb Baruch Levine concert and have an opportunity to see the uh, incredible magic of Camp Hask. That's happening uh, on Sunday. And that broadcast, that show that we do on Sunday, you will hear Monday morning between 6 and 9 a.m. right here at JM in the AM. Rabbi Beryl Wine on the topic of Kinnis, the um, liturgy that dominates the day of Tisha B'Av. Here he is at JM in the AM. Today and tomorrow I'm going to uh, discuss with you the uh, keynote, the... Uh poetry, the elegies that are said on uh, Tisha B'Av. So today I want to give you a general uh, understanding and who the authors are. And tomorrow we will uh, spend some time on the actual keynote themselves. 
the original Kino is naturally the book of Eicha, of which uh, the Novi Yirmiyahu uh, composed. And the word Kino is found in the Novi, in Yirmiyahu. And the Kino was a form of mourning. Uh, it was uh, accepted in the ancient world and in, uh, even in the medieval world that there were professional mourners that the family, uh, God forbid, a, a funeral took place, would hire professional mourners, usually women, that would come and weep. And uh, in so doing, they would inspire others uh, to that emotion as well. The Novi says, Kiru lam call the weepers, call in the professional mourners. So to us, that's a little bizarre, because we're not into weeping that much anyway. In the Western world, it is no longer macho to weep. Therefore, uh, uh, these events, uh, such as a funeral, God forbid, are oftentimes very sterile, unemotional. Let's get it over with. But uh, in the uh, ancient world, and I mentioned to you, even in the medieval world, it was uh, it was an event, not just an event for the family that was directly involved, but it was an event for everyone. And uh, because of that, therefore, uh, this was an honored profession uh, to be a professional uh, weeper. Later in Jewish life, there were professional eulogy sayers who would uh, be maspid, who would say the hespid. And that was their uh, forte, so to speak. And there's an entire literature of hespidim, of uh, eulogies. Now again, in it has changed so in this world that uh, I barely recognize. But for instance, in my youth, uh, if there was a funeral, God forbid, no member of the family would get up to speak. The ones that spoke were always outside the family. Rabbis, teachers, uh, communal people. But it was unheard of that, for instance, a son or a daughter uh, should speak at a funeral regarding a deceased parent. Uh, But that has uh, turned around 180 degrees today, uh, where it's uh, de rigueur, it's the accepted practice. Uh, So in these matters, uh, things change. So what was once bizarre, uh, or rather what was once normal, may appear to us today to be bizarre, and what we think is normal would perhaps appear to be bizarre to them. So you had the, these uh, people that said keynote. Now, the uh, in uh, Jewish life, the expression of poetry... Uh, found an outlet basically in religious life, though there was an outlet in secular poetry as well. 
and uh, in uh, two areas uh, was uh, poetry uh, emphasized. One was the keynote that we're going to discuss uh, that have to do with Tisha B'Av, and the other has to do with ritual poetry such as Slichot, which exist before the Yom Naraim, or prayers in the middle of the prayer service, which were called Yotzrot. And uh, I'll, I'll try and discuss a little of that as well. But that's where poetry was concentrated. And uh, in, during the Golden Age of Spain, so then there was a great deal of secular poetry also, uh, written by great men. Because it was the spirit of the times, the Spanish world that they lived in was a world of poems. And, uh, for instance, if you went to visit somebody, so today we bring a bottle of wine or uh, candy or something, then they brought a poem. And uh, if you went to a funeral, God forbid, so then you brought a poem, which was a eulogy, or to the house of the person who was mourning. And... uh, Everybody tried their hand at poetry. Some were very great at it. We also have a form of poetry that we call Zmirot, that we sing uh, at the Sabbath meals. For instance, there's a great poem, Yonah uh, Motzabo Manoach, Vishom Yanuchabo Koach. So that Zemer was written by Rabbi Yehuda Halevi lived in the 12th century and to a great extent he is the poet laureate of the Jewish people but he wrote that poem for a Sheva Brachot on Shabbat between a Kala named uh, a Chatan named Yonah and a Kala named Menucha and it's a play on Shabbat and on the Sheva Brachot, right? Yonah, the Chosun, found Menucha, found Manoah. And Yonah also means it's the symbol of the Jewish people, and Manoah is the symbol of Shabbat. So it's that play on words, and they, so he gave it as a, per, as a present for the Sheva Brachot, but it became so popular and well accepted that uh, everybody sings it today. So we live in a world that's pretty dry, you know, it's, our world is uh, pretty great, there's not much of a flash of color to it. But it wasn't always that way in the Jewish world. And uh, poetry was an accepted form of uh, art, creativity, and as I mentioned, uh, almost everybody tried their hand at it. For instance, we have the uh, Slichot from Rashi uh, that we recite, Erev Rosh Hashanah. Uh, Rashi felt impelled somehow to write a poem because of the fact that everybody was writing poems. Uh, the most, uh, the, the earliest uh, poet is uh, a, a man called Rabbi Elozer HaKalir. 
in fact, over half of the keynote that we're going to recite on Tishabov were written by him. He is the most prolific of the poets. And he wrote uh, uh, Yotzrot for uh, uh, every Shabbos of the year, every Shabbat of the year, every Parsha, and for every holiday. We recite many of his poems in our Mahzor for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. The structure of the poem is as follows. The structure of how it is. It's called Yotzrot, but because uh, the first place where they introduced, I think because it's a question in halakha, whether you can say a poem in the middle of Davni, right? Whether or not that's a hefzik. Today, because uh, of the opposition of the Golan of Vilna, mainly, to the introduction of poems in the middle of Davni, so the, uh, the audience for uh, poetry in the middle of Davni has been diminished. But there was a time in the Jewish world where everybody said Yotzot, and everybody said the Piyutim, and the, you know, the more the merrier, and especially on Yom Kippur when you had nothing to do all day. So then they put in all the poems that they could. So uh, it's called Yotzot because it was introduced in the Brocha, Baruch HaTo Hashem, Elokeinu Melech Olam, so after that bracha, they inserted poems. So those poems were called the Yotzrot after the word Yotzer. Then there were poems that were called Zulat because of the fact that they were introduced in the middle of the Kedusha, Kodosh, Kodosh, Kodosh. Uh, then there were poems that were called Geula because they were introduced in the middle of the bracha Go al Yisrael. And then in the repetition of the Shimon Asra, we had things that were called Krovot, the near poems, which were right in the beginning, and then poems in Kedusha. So today they almost universally, no one recites poems in Kedusha anymore. But uh, if you have an old Mazar, old European mouser to look at, you'll see that there are long passages to be said uh, in, uh, in uh, the middle of Kedusha poems that were recited. Uh, so that became common. That became that accepted. And uh, the poems were uh, religious in nature. As I mentioned, Rabbi Lozar Akalir is the most prolific of all of them. There was another Babylonian poet by the name of Yanai, uh, Piyute Yanai, the poems of Yanai, uh, but uh, those poems are only recited in certain communities in the world. They never achieved the popularity that Revelosar Akalir did. Now, who is Revelosar Akalir? So, like all things in the Jewish world, there are different opinions. Tosfus mentions that Rebbe Lozar Kalir was the Tano of Rebbe Lozar the son of Rebbe Shimon ben Yochoi, which would uh, date him very early, date him back to uh, uh, the second century before the com- at the second century after the Common Era, and also would give him a stature of being a Tano, 
However, uh, most of the other uh, uh, scholars and commentators uh, say that uh, Rabbi Loza Khalir is not the town of Rabbi Loza Rebbeinah, but rather he is a uh, Babylonian or Balkan Jew uh, who lived in probably the 7th or 8th century and wrote those poems. Now, Rabbi Lozer HaKalir takes great liberty with the Hebrew language. The Hebrew language, as you know, is a very sparse language. It has a very small base of vocabulary. That's why, for instance, in modern Hebrew, we have to import so many words. Because the language is in the English, for instance, is an enormously rich language in terms of words and synonyms. But Hebrew is very tight. Very small base. So what he did is he took nouns and he uh, made them into verbs. He took verbs and made them into nouns. He has a famous statement of one of his poems, Admon Kibot. Now that's a, we say that on Yom Kippur, this poem. Admon, the red one, meaning Esau, Kibot, when he looked. When he looked to see Yaakov's family and his uh, wives and his children attempted to uh, give them the evil eye, so to speak. Now, so the Admon is an invention of his. Bot is certainly an invention of his. There's no Hebrew word bot. But because of the poetic structure, he, to keep the meter and to keep the rhyme, so he took liberties with the language. Because of the fact that he took liberties with the language, uh, Rabbeinu Avrom Ibn Ezra, who was a poet in his own right, uh, and a critic, in his commentary to Kohelis, towards the end of the uh, fourth chapter, beginning of the fifth chapter, or maybe it's towards the end of the fifth chapter, he takes on Rabbi Lozar Khalir head on. And he says, uh, really, uh, very negative things about his poetry. How he took those liberties with the old language. But uh, history voted for Rabbi Lozar Khalir. The Jewish people took his poems and inserted them everywhere in their ritual service. And uh, therefore, in the book of Kinot, which has, I think, 52 poems, there are 27 or 28 are from him. The first 21 in a row are his. And the style of the uh, poems... Uh, is to take verses from the book of Eicha itself and to build a poem. That, in other words, the verse becomes the refrain in the poem. Now, Rebbe Lozer HaKalir uh, was a master of uh, knowing uh, Talmud and Midrash. So therefore, you have to be a London to be able to figure out his poem. And it's not easy to do so. And in fact, uh, 
There are certain riddles in his poems that have remained unsolved until today. Just as there is a famous riddle, that's another thing that was in the Jewish world, is that people wrote riddles, and you have to figure it out. So there's a riddle in the introduction of the Eben Ezra, the Chumash Breshes, uh, that for uh, the last thousand years almost, people are trying to figure out what the answer to the riddle is, and no one has ever come up with the answer yet. It's like that math problem. What there's a famous math problem for which no one there's a prize of millions of dollars if you can figure out the there's more money if you can figure out where Saddam Hussein is, but the uh, but there is a prize for uh, for solving this math problem. So there are riddles, uh, you know. So again, it looks to us bizarre. I mean, in the, you know, none of uh, none of our scholars today. Uh, occupy themselves with such things. But again, in the Middle Ages, and the pre-Middle Ages, uh, this was common. It was intellectual exercise. It was the spirit of the times. And the Jews always were swayed by whatever the spirit of the times was, at least culturally. So you have here this bulk of Kinos of Rebelozer HaKalir, the bulk of Kinos is built upon uh, the book of Eicha, and almost every Kino uses uh, a verse from Eicha as being a uh, refrain, a base for, uh, for the poetry that follows. Now what's interesting in the keynote of, uh, is that... Uh, the expression of sorrow uh, is always uh, intense and personal. It's almost written in first person, second person. It's not something that happened to Jewish people. It's something that happened to me. And that is how the author portrays it. That's how the poet portrays it. Because we all know that... uh, uh, we uh, somehow are able to be sanguine about other people's troubles, God forbid. But if God forbid we have troubles, so then we're a little more uh, focused. That's what they say, you know, the difference between minor surgery and major surgery is that if it's you, it's minor surgery, and if it's me, it's major surgery. In the uh, keynote, uh, this, the day of Tisha B'Av has been a sad day for the Jewish people. Generally, uh, the first uh, Tishabov was in the desert in, when they left Egypt. Uh, when the Meraglim came back, the spies came back and gave the negative report regarding the land of Israel. So it says, And that night did the Jewish people weep. They said, Where are you taking us? We're going to die. Our enemies will overwhelm us. It's suicidal for us to go to Israel. He took us out of Egypt to die here in the desert. So they wept. So the Medrash says, the famous Medrash, you weep tonight really for no reason, but I will give you reason throughout history to weep on this night. So uh, the first Tisha is in the desert. The first temple is destroyed on the ninth of Av. 
The second temple began burning in the late afternoon of the ninth of Av and burned throughout the tenth of Av. So the Gemara says, Rabbi Yochanan said that I would have decreed to fast on the tenth of Av. But that would have been uh, asking too much of the people to have to fast two days consecutively. And since the ninth of Av was established already, so we fast on the ninth of Av because uh, the beginning of the Churban is the ninth of Av. The city of Betar, which was the last stronghold of Bar Kokhba and his rebellion, fell on Tishabov to the Romans in the year 139. And that marked the end of the rebellion. The Romans slaughtered the uh, inhabitants of the city. Uh, so the ninth of all has always been a uh, black letter day on the Jewish calendar. In 1492, the expulsion of the Jews from Spain, the last days to leave fell on the ninth of all. J.M. in the A.M. Rabbi Beryl Wine is discussing Kinnis, and of course we'll get back to Rabbi Wine's lecture on Kinnis coming up here at J.M. in the A.M. It's Thursday, Tisha B'Av morning. We open the day by not greeting one another. We um, do not eat or drink today. We do not uh, wash our hands the same way we normally do today. We don't wear leather shoes today, and we hope that these restrictions and all the restrictions help us get into the mood of the sadness and the uh, day of mourning that Tisha B'Av is. Wishing everybody an easy and meaningful fast and hoping this is the last time that Tisha B'Av is in fact going to be a sad day. Our tradition tells us that with the uh, ultimate redemption, Tisha B'Av becomes a holiday, one that we're certainly looking forward to. So we're hoping that today is an inspirational, meaningful, and easy day for everybody, as easy as possible. As I mentioned earlier on the East Coast in the New York, New Jersey area, traditionally, or at least it seems this way, it's always the hottest day and a very humid day and a difficult day, and today seems to be uh, just along those lines, so we're wishing everybody an easy fast and a meaningful one on this Thursday of Tisha B'Av. Rabbi David Goldwasser, who's been with us for 40 years, I should say we've been with him since he predates us at JM and the AM. Um, he has uh, volunteered every time Tisha B'Av is on a weekday to join me on the air and to offer commentary on the kinos that we recite. We will take a number of kinos. We will uh, recite a good portion of each one on the air, uh, essentially the uh, opening and closing uh, portions of those kinos. And then Rabbi Goldwasser will uh, give us um, some thoughts to keep in mind regarding the specific kinos that we've read. For those who are not in synagogue this morning, this is a very, very unique and um, opportune time to be focused for the next 40 minutes or so on the kinos of the day and to make Tisha B'Av feel more like Tisha B'Av, again, especially for those who are not able to make it to synagogue today. So even though I won't greet Rabbi Goldwasser, Rabbi Goldwasser, I will thank you in advance for joining us on this Tisha B'Av morning. It is a very, very great honor, if you will, to be together with you as we are every Tisha B'Av that falls out in the middle of the week. Because I say it for the simple reason, Tzoras Rabbi Mchatsi the the trouble 
the pain that is felt when you have a Robin, when you have a community that are behind you, is already half of the Nechama, half of the comfort. By being united with the listening world and all of those that really tune in every day to you throughout the world, just by being together and sharing our upset, sharing our pain, there's no greater comfort than that. I just want to make note that we are not on the program. There's no Tisha Book program uh, on JM in the AM when it happens to be a Sunday. One year when it was on a Sunday, I saw one of the listeners, it was about two weeks after. So I said, how are you doing? She so said to me, I'm doing okay, but I didn't have anything on Tisha B'Av. I said, what do you mean? She says, well, you know, I always had the, the program, but it's not on on Sunday when this Tisha B'Av falls out on Sunday. And I thought to myself, two weeks after Tisha B'Av, and the, there's one Jew, one Yid that wasn't able to listen to it, what the program means to the world. That's why I say, Tzoros Rabin Chatzin Nechama. And it is definitely a great measure of comfort to have the program and to have Rav Nachum to be together with. Wow. Um, Rabbi Goldwasser shares my sentiment that this is, uh, in fact, a unique way to be part of a community, and that's so heartwarming to me. Now, of course, we're going to have to reconsider what we do on Sunday. If I'm not mistaken, the next time we have that problem will be two weeks from now. Two years from now, rather, <laughs> if, if in fact we're still observing Tisha B'Av as a day of mourning two years from now, hopefully we won't be. Uh, but if those who uh, look at the calendar in advance, we'll try to rectify that situation when we get to 2025. We begin with the uh, kinna that's known as kinna number six, Shavasuru, and then we'll turn to Rabbi Goldwasser. Shavasuru meni shimuni ovrai, schiumaos hasimuni bedre chaverai, sakosa mishkamishos dvirai, sakosa vuvlagugi borai, safku chafamuadu evorai, kisila chol abirai, naflo denu betsuduchuya, eni chiksa lachazon bembrechya, ad pile gilgol chavuya, eni meolelas bivanis nechuya. Asavanicha, my crawly vichia, Benamale, an evochia, Kitam Hakta, Becheso Fanecha, Tashivlehem Gimul, Kos Hazos Panecha, Tirdof, Salmonio, Ate Altsunacha, Titan Lahavhev, no Sitze, Pinecha, Tikrola Shakrom, Kos Kamus Bifinecha, Tavo Hora, Samlefanecha, Tavo Tsara Sherki Lanu, Limivo Hamos, Bechemonia Lanu, Adla Haloch, the Havor. Higlanu, Zakane of Ahur, Sulah, Kivalanu, Rama Beidna, Mehakulanu, Zehar Adonai, Mehayalanu. That is the completion of the kinna that we know as uh, kinna number six, Shavasuru. We now turn to Rabbi Goldwasser. Shavasuru. It talks about the effect that Klal Yisrael felt when the Beis Hamikdash went up in smoke. It talks about the various Nisim, the miracles that happened, and that all came to a standstill. We say in Shavasuru, the idea that Hashem took 
the Beis Amikdash as a mashkan as collateral. And we were not able to enjoy it. We were not able to participate in it because, unfortunately, we had done things that were wrong. Hashem said there's a choice. Either I take the Beis Amikdash or Klau Yisrael. And he gave the Malach Gavriel the choice. Gavriel Michoel. Gavriel Michoel said, well, of course, take the Beis Amikdosh, but leave Klal Yisrael. Hashem said, okay, I will do that. However, at that moment, the posuk from Tehillim rang out from the sky. Ashrei Adam Mechpachet Tamid. Happy is the person that is always afraid. What does that mean? It means that the truth is the Malachim, the angels, they chose wrong. Had they say, Hashem, please wipe out Klau Yisrael, wipe out the Jewish people, it would have never happened because we are promised Klau Yisrael is Netzach, Nitzchius. We have eternity. Hashem then would not have destroyed the Beis Amikdosh and certainly would not have harmed the Jewish people. But because the Malachim said, take the Beis Amikdosh, that Hashem could take. We learn from this that every word, every decision that we make in life, we have to be very careful because our words have a meaning. Our words have an effect. Chazal tell us that, the, our sages tell us that one of the very important things that we remember is that we don't have the schus, we don't have the merit of having the Beis Amikdosh, and because of that, each and every moment, we have to constantly remember to be cognizant of that fact, to remember it throughout the year, whether it's at a wedding, and the chosan, the chatan, puts ashes on his head, whether it is when we're buying a new house or building a new house, that we make a zechel chorban, a remembrance of the destruction over the doorway, whether it's while we're eating, not to listen to music, to know that we have to do without some of the luxuries in life, and to keep our head involved in the fact that we hope for Yerushalayim, we want to see Yerushalayim completely rebuilt, that's what Shavasuru means, that we should take the note that all is not business as usual, that there are things that you and I have to take very much to heart and have to try and put it into our daily life. When we step back three steps and we say, we will once again serve in, in awe. We will once again have the base of English that we thirst for it that the Kohanim will eventually return to their Avodah. The Levim, Rav Nachum is a Levi, that the Levim will return and once again do their Avodah in the Beis Amikdosh, that will hear the sweet sounds of their song and of their playing. We don't realize how much we are missing that in this world, what's absent from our life. It is a vacuum that simply cannot be filled until we will have the Beis Amikdosh. And that's why on Tisha B'Av we sit down, we cry, we cry our eyes out, we try whatever we possibly can do in order to show Hashem how much it is missing. Just want to point out that Tor Malka, 
is mentioned in Maseches Gitin in the Talmud. And Tormalka was an anomaly. On one side of Tormalka, they were crying bitterly. On the other side of the city, they were rejoicing and being happy. And the Talmud says that some people hop and some people don't. It could be the same city. It could be the same shul. It could be the same neighborhood. We all have to get on the same page, join in hands. It don't matter where we're holding politically. I saw across the aisle with a terrible, terrible uh, upset in Eretz Yisrael and the different factions and the protests and so forth. But the interesting thing is when both sides saw each other and they were passing each other in line, a number of the people extended their hands to those of the opposite feeling, the opposite side politically, and they shook their hands and they grasped each other. That's Klal Yisrael, that we understand that we have to be unified, especially at a time like this. We continue with Kinna number 11. Vayikonein Yermiyo al Yoshio Echa Eli Koninu Me'elav Ben Shmona Shana Hecheli Drosh Me'elohav Ben Echam B'Avram Chanu Alav Elohus Karlo Sigoi Mifalav Gam B'chol Malchai Yisrael Asher Kamu Ligdor Lo Kam Kamo Miyamos Havigidor Dalak B'Ched Leitzane Ador Asher Kamu Achar Adel Leslis Dor Tam B'Mikre Echad Kos Megidol Ishtos in this kinna, we talk about the idea of what has transpired over the years of Golos. We talk about the various tragedies that Claudius Israel has gone through and how each and every one of us take note, especially on the day of Tisha B'Av, for all of the past tragedies that have gone on. It is uh, interesting that Yermioa Novi writes a kina on Yoshio. Yoshio, who was huge. Yoshio was a person that when he was eight years old, his father died. When he was 18, he took over the kingdom. Yoshio understood that there was something greater in this world. He began to look for Hashem, even though his father and his grandfather were Rishayim. They caused the multitudes to sin. They established about Azara. He did Shuvah Shalema. He repented completely. And he went all over Eretz Yisrael to bring back the Yidin and to have them to do Tshuva. When Yoshua was 31 years old, he went from house to house and he tried to get rid of all the Avodah that was there. It's an amazing fact that Yoshio was successful. He had great siyata dishmaya. And because he had such divine assistance from heaven, 
it would seem as though he was going to be the tzaddik ador. But something happened that disrupted all of it. And that is when Paro, one of the Paros came and asked to kindly go through this city. He did not want to do anything. He just wanted to pass through the land. So Yoshio was very strong. He knows there's a pasuk that talks about no one can pass through the land, that the enemy cannot pass through the land. But what he didn't do was find out exactly how that applies. The enemy can only not pass through the land as long as there was a sword, as long as there were weapons. If the enemy wanted to pass through the land peacefully, any opposing city or group or nation, that would be okay. However, Yoshio never went to ask Yirmiyahu. He never went to ask him the halacha. He paskened, he decided the halacha on his own. Because of that, unfortunately, Paro, when he told him he wasn't able to go, Paro went, ordered his army, they shot 300 arrows, and they went through the body of Yoshio. Yermio cried because he realized what a tzaddik Yoshio is. But it teaches all of us, even if we are great, even if we have done everything perfectly, we have to be careful because at any time in our life, a person could make a mistake. It could be a fatal mistake. As we know, a Kohen Gadol, that after decades and decades of service, went off and made a mistake and unfortunately left Torah. It teaches us to be careful. In the end of the uh, Kina, we talk about Lokom Kamo Mimosmo Vigdor that nobody came, nobody was able to rise up like the bones of Moshe. A Vigdor is one of the names that we call Moshe. The reason is because it comes from two words, Avigidor. He mended the fences, the brokenness in Klal Yisrael, the breaches. Our job in this world is to try to mend the breaches, is to try to fix whatever we can, try to rectify, rectify what we need to straighten out in ourselves, try to rectify what we see in the community that we could possibly improve. We try to mend the breaches if we see people that don't know about Yiddishkeit, don't know about Torah, don't know about mitzvahs. We try to bring them in. That's Avi Gedor. The program that we're all part of reaches out on so many different levels from Nachum, not just the hearts of people in Klau Yisrael. Maybe one of the greatest things that the program does is Avigador. It mends the breaches. It brings everybody together. It helps everybody to understand a little bit more about what Hashem requires from us. We continue with uh, the kin known as Eko, number 13. Eko Omer Kores the Obefetzach, we've respin up Sorim, Koye, Lanetzach, Henatabu, Atzomai Beretzach, Lomo Elohim, Zonach, Talonetzach, Eko Gosh Kesel, O Lolo Atzosecho, 
Nel Chadko, Pitu Beido Secho, Venato Dokru, Befel Acharayo Secho, Yeshanapcho, Bitson, Mari Secho, Ekoshivas, Shofros Eretz. Kosa Seshishis Yomim, Labil Homo, Lo Oretz, Venatoshi Orim, Tavuvo Oretz. Sorfu Komoade, Elbo Oretz, Ekoshuos. Asame Otsar, Bechomar, Asher, Lachosim, Notsar, Venato, Tupu. For Ochai Bachatzar, Admosai Elohim Yechoreftzar. A Ko. <coughs> what happened to that power of Ko? Ko is the power of Tshuva. What happened? In Golos we realize that we've been affected by the unethical and immoral behavior what has happened in the world, definitely, we are exposed to it. We're not an insular community completely. Eko, what happened to the power of tshuva? Everybody in this world has to take note that we are constantly trying to get closer to Hashem. With the world where it's at currently, a Jew has to doubly bolster themselves in order to be strong. What happened to the power of tshuva that a person was so moved and that a person used to be able to have a hisoyerus? We had an inspiration. We would see the Kohanim gather to eat their truma. We would see the Avod and the base of Mikdush. We would look at the base of Mikdush. There was a power of tshuva, even by seeing tzaddikim, great men and great women, we would be moved to do tshuva. It happened one time that the Ger Rebbe, when he went to a gathering in Eretz Yisrael, so there was one of the secular media, someone who was irreligious, and he was there to take the event and to write it up. It was for the news. He was there all of a sudden. He stopped writing. One of his fellow journalists said to him, why'd you stop? So he said, because I, I just see this rabbi come in and look at the Rav, Hadrat Panim, look at his face. How can I write? A secular journalist sees the face of the Ger Rabbi and can't continue to write. I'm afraid that sometimes we see the face of the Ger Rebbe, or any Rebbe, or any Rav, or any great Tzadikas, and I think we just continue. We've grown used to it. Eiko, what happened to that power of tshuva that we all had? We all understand the tremendous power of Kosovarchu, the bracha of the Kohanim, the Kosovarchu. And what happened when the Kohanim used to do their avoda in the base of Mikdosh. And now it's confined, at least for the Ashkenazim, to only a few times a year. Shlosh Rugalim, Yom Tov, to our great Sephardic communities. May they live long and be well in each place and have great atznacha they're able to do it much more often. The power that the Kohanim gave over into this world 
was huge. A koi, what happened to that power? It still exists today. And in fact, according to the Sefer Derek Mitzvah when the Kohanim give their bracha, so no, no kitrig, there's no accuser that can say that that bracha should not happen for Klal Yisrael. That's why it is so important to be close to Berchus Kohanim. And whenever a person has a chance to go to a place where they do ducha, to go to a place where they have Berchus Kohanim, Eikoi, what has happened over the years? Why have things gone down so much that we don't understand? Where's the power gone to? That power is missing because of the absence of the Beis Amikdosh. We thirst for the Beis Amikdosh that it should come back quickly in our days, that the power should be renewed, the power of tshuva, the power of bracha, the power of success for all of us, for all of Klal Yisrael. Absolutely brilliant. Rabbi Goldwasser is with us. We are presenting Kinos, a live Kinos service here on the air at JMA, and we continue with Kina number 17. <speaking in Hebrew> we see that in this kinah, we know that there was a part within the years that the Nashim, the women, Nashim Rachmanias, women who have great mercy, uh, were responsible for their own children and the fact that their children did not survive in many of the instances were due to the Nashim Rachmanias, the mothers that had been so merciful up until then. The question is asked, how was a person able to change so radically from being a Rachman, from being somebody who had mercy, to somebody who would be cruel? And in fact, we know that the Zohar says that the Hebrew word for cruel is achzor. Ach Zor. And the Zor points out it comes from two words. Ach Zor. How strange. Ach Zor. How strange. When you see a Jewish person and they're not acting with Rachmanus, it is impossible for us to understand. When the killer of Rabbi Meir Kahana, Zechert Sadik Livracha, when he was brought to trial, he was defended by somebody unfortunately, was Jewish. At that time, one of the great poskim of the world said, I am sure that that person's yichus is flawed. He is certainly not Jewish. He thinks that he's Jewish, but he's not. 
because to be Jewish is to have Rahmanus, to have mercy. He for sure has the cruelty because he's not from B'nai Yisrael. I remember hearing that. I was a young boy at the time, and I'll never forget how it shook me. It was the only way that I could possibly explain that somebody could defend a terrorist, someone who killed a great person in cold blood. We realize as well that the Kohen and the Nabi was killed on the holiest day in the holiest place. How could it be that Zechariah ben Yehoyada, who gave Musa, who cared about Klal Yisrael, that he was able to be killed? How could they kill him on that day? The answer is that we have greatness within everyone. If we don't exercise that greatness, unfortunately, it goes the opposite way. As great as we are, Khalilah, God forbid, we also have the other end of the angle. One doesn't come without the other. Because of that, this kina helps us to understand that each of us has to strive for all the potential inside of us that we possibly can fulfill. We have to make sure we're all a work in progress each and every day. If I can't be great, so be almost great. If I can't be almost great, so be good. If I can't be perfectly good, be almost good. But a yid has to constantly strive to go upwards, just like the candle. When you turn the candle, the flame keeps trying to go upwards. Even you turn the candle upside down, the flame struggles to go up. That's what a yid does throughout their life. We remember that if we don't try our best, we could be not so good. And that's what we learn from these various sightings in this particular kino. We continue with the Asara Haruge Malchus, the Ten Martyrs. Arze Halavanon Adirea Torah, Balais Racin, Vimishno, Vigmora, Gibore Koach, Amolea Batara, Damam Nishbach, Menachesag, Vura, Hinam Kedoshe, Aruge, Malchus Asara, Vial Ela, Anivo Hia, Vieni Nigara, Zospezochria, Zakmora, Chemadas, Israel, Klea Kodesh Nezervatora, Tore Lev Kedoshim, Mesu, Misochamura, Yadu Goral, Mirishon, Lacherebura, Kinfogoral, Rabban Shimon, Poshat Savaro, Uvacha, Kinig Zerog, Yatasa, Nishmaso, Bivara, Lohim, Yotse, Vitartsura, Kahina, Vahina, Hosifu, Benavla, Lanos, Bigara, Biskilos, Rafa, Hereg, Vichenig, Mihalashara, No Saras, Vimena, Yochlu, Arayos, Sep, Hizura, Hazeat, Nufa, Vishokatruma, Torfuarieva, Hakfira, Yeti, Vadanoi, Veloyosif, Odli, Yasra, Ameis, Birkayim, Koshlos, Helek, Yakov, Moshia, Beis, Sara, Tzedek, Imloch, Melech, Yomarshal, Muyeme, Yevlech, Leoro, Nisa, Venelech. I say, how well known in 
I appreciate, as we all do, the way that Rav Nachum says over the Kinnah. It's all the Shliach Tzibor. It's all goes after the Chazan, the one who leads, who gives a certain feeling every single year that we're together. Our Zehavanon are the cedars of Lebanon, and we bless every child. that they should grow like the cedars of Lebanon. All the children, those that have an easy time. We bless the children that don't have such an easy time. Everybody can grow great. We realize that there are challenges in the world Every parent and every grandparent should have chizuk, should have the encouragement that through tefillah, through our efforts, through great salvation from Hashem, our children, no matter what the challenges, can grow up to be great and they can overcome much in this world. If you take a look at some of the great tzaddikim, the martyrs that we're going to mention, we realize that some of the martyrs, unfortunately, when they were young, they didn't have such greatness. They weren't immediately from one years old and two years old learning through the entire Shas, the whole Talmud. They had struggles, but yet look what they came to be. Rabbi Akiva Rabbi Kiva was so far off the mark when he was younger. He hated Tamidei Chachamim. He hated great rabbis, great rabbitsons. Look what Rabbi Kiva grew into. It didn't matter how they were born. It didn't matter the struggles, the difficulties in education that some might have had. They grew great. We also know that the Arzei known the great masters, how they helped Klal Yisrael and gave up their life. They were Moshe Nefesh al-Kidush Hashem. They gave up their life to sanctify God's name. We read about it. Rav Soloveitchik, Zecher Tzadik Livracha, used to say, it's very interesting, we read about the martyrs on Tisha B'Av. And curiously, we read about the martyrs in Musaf, on Yom Kippur, he says two things. That one, reading about it, is Me'orah Rachamim. It is able to stir compassion from Shemayim in the sluice of the great martyrs. It's also a kinah. It's very sad. And we remember the martyrs. And the third is, it's like a slicha. It's like when we say slichos, the prayers of penitence and asking Hashem for forgiveness in Elul and during the Yomim Noroim, the High Holy Days, we say certain prayers of slichos. He says that this kinah is like a slicha. It's a slicha on Yom Kippur. It's a slicha on Tisha B'Av. Perhaps we ask Hashem in the merit of those great 
tzaddikim of all the tzaddikim of the past of the great Nashim Tzidkanios, we ask Hashem, please help. Please remember the great ones who have given up their life, Al-Kiddush Hashem. We also mention over the years the people that have passed on, the great tzaddikim and Nashim Tzidkanios that passed on this past year. We certainly fresh in our minds is the great Rav Gershon Edelstein, the Goin and Rosh Hashiva of Ponovich, who tapped Torah till his last day on earth from his hospital bed over 100 years old. He is saying a shir to Talmidim, giving over a class in Torah. Greatest of the greats. When Bibi Netanyahu needed to know direction from the Torah world, he accepted it from one person. He accepted it from Rav Edelstein and would only listen to the personal shliach of Rav Edelstein, his son, in order to know the direction that Eretz Yisrael should go into. We remember Rebetz and David, the great Sadekis, the head who established one of the first seminaries in Israel and opened the door for thousands and thousands to go after and to model themselves after the Beis Yaakov of Yerushalayim. The greatness that she gave over to Chinuch, that she was mechanic, hundreds of thousands of girls and women in their families. We remember her. It's one of the Arzayavonon. We remember the members of the D family that were Naragal Kiddush Hashem, the precious wife and the daughters of Rabbi D. A person given over to Eretz Yisrael, given over to mitzvahs, given over to teaching Torah. He's a tzaddik, Yisod Olam, to be able to stand up at a Leviah that is horrific, is tragic beyond description and speak so eloquently, so passionately, so powerfully, so full of emunam When we read our we ask Hashem, please Hashem is parach, in this schus of all of these tzaddikim and noshim sikonios, that we should have compassion, that we should have rachmanus, from Shemayim, and that all of these things stop. We never hear any Besura Ra'ah ever again. No bad news. Only a year of good health, a year of happiness, a year of Shalom Bayez, a year of Parnasatova, good livelihood for everybody, a year when all the children come together with their parents, a year when there's no more fighting in this unity in Klal Yisrael a year that everybody is able to have all of the brachas that they've been waiting for, for children, whatever a person wants. It should already be the time when all the schuyos kick in and we march on together, unified to Eretz Yisrael, all of us together. We'll have to fight in order to get the best place. But wherever we're going to be in Eretz Yisrael, Hashem assures us the land will 
absorb, it will expand, as we say in the Shabbat Brachos, in each and every one of us, we'll find a beautiful place, and we'll go together and serve Hashem on an even greater level. Amen. Veruach atumah b'tzeisim Yerushalayim Rina v'yeshua v'chatzotzos hashruah b'tzeisim Yitzrayim Zakas olol v'nakas chalol b'tzeisim Yerushalayim Sholchanu menorah v'chal d'luk Torah b'tzeisim Yitzrayim Elil v'soeva v'feselu matzeva b'tzeisim Yerushalayim Torah usuuda uchalei hachemeda b'tzeisim Yitzrayim Sason Simcha v'nasya gaon v'anacha b'shuvi l'Yerushalayim. In the Kinnah, b'tzeis Yerushalayim, as we heard it so beautifully sung, we have the double, dual track. One, we talk about going into Golos. One, we talk about the happiness of leaving Mitzrayim and going to freedom. Tisha B'Av is that day in which we're on a dual track. On one hand, we don't eat, we don't drink, we don't do other things. It's a bitter day. On the other hand, it's a moed. We don't say takhun, it's a festival. Even a mourner doesn't lead the services, according to many, as on Shabbos and festivals. We realize that right now we may be down. Right now, maybe the situation is not so good. But at the very same time, Tisha B'Av itself, Mashiach Tzidkenu was born. We realize that even at this very moment, great things are preparing up in Shemaim for us. The Geula is a step away. The redemption can come. It's dependent on us. As David Amalek says in Tehillim, Hayom, it could come today. In Bekolo Tishma'u, if we will listen to the voice of Hashem. We conclude with uh, Elitzion, the traditional conclusion of the morning kinna service. Elitzion viareho kemaho ishavitzireho vchivasula chagura sak albal niureho aleramon asher nutash biashmahas zon adoreho vialbias mechar feel soch mikdash chadoreho elitzion viareho kemaho ishavitzireho vchivasula chagura sak albal niureho alekolos mechar feho vies rabu Reho, 
Aleishim v'chorasher chulav, v'fikamem etzireho, v'yaltachan nitzav v'chulach. Keshavu shma moreho, litzion v'yoreho, k'mo yishav etzireho, v'chiv suloch agurasak, al bal niyureho. As we conclude the kinnis, we conclude with a sad kinna, with a kinna of supplication to Hashem, that we have gone through everything. We've gone through all of the travails and the challenges of the gullus of the exile. We have fulfilled our measure in having the challenges and the travails and the tzaras. We ask Hashem that this Tishabov, Mashiach should already come. We know Mashiach is born on Tishabov. The whole world should change. Klal Yisrael should be elevated. That we are all united together in Eretz Yisrael. And all of us will do our Avodah. We will all be gathered together and Rav Nachum will be broadcasting no question whatsoever next year from Yerushalayim, from his new studio. Please, God. Rabbi Goldwasser, I thank you so much, and may it be the last time we have to do this, an easy and meaningful fast to you. Amen. Thank you. Rabbi David Goldwasser, such a mainstay and important centerpiece of our programming, especially when it comes to Torah matters and Chizuk on a daily basis. And on Tisha B'av, he joins me. Uh, to explain, to comment, to inspire, and to tell some amazing and incredible um, words about uh, the Kino service. I'm sure many of you were very, very touched this morning um, by what Rabbi Goldwasser said. Uh, it certainly has left quite an impression on me. JM in the AM on a Thursday morning. It is a Tish above. Uh, today we don't eat or drink. Today we uh, wash our hands differently than we normally do. Um, not in the usual manner. Today we do not wear leather shoes. These restrictions help us maintain a perspective about the sadness and mournfulness of the day. A couple of programming notes tonight. As many people will be anxious after the fast to get back into our regular format, we will present the Erev Shabbos show with Mark Zamek. Brought to you by the wonderful people at Kedem at midnight Eastern time tonight at 7 a.m. in Israel. For those of you waking up tomorrow morning in Israel and want an amazing and great music show. Midnight tonight Eastern time and again at 3 a.m. and 10 a.m. Eastern time. The Arab Shabbat Show with Mark Zamek. Hundreds of songs for Nachamu, for Veshanon, for the Haftorah, for this uh, period of time. And I thank Mark. Those of you who listen to the Arab Shabbos show on 24-6, it will be available on 24-6 uh, before the end of the fast tonight. It will already be up there uh, before the fast ends uh, tonight. So keep that in mind. Also, a, um, a reminder about some of our other programming tomorrow morning, JM in the AM. We will uh, present uh, Malcolm Honline, Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, the weekly update at 7.40 a.m. tomorrow. Uh, we'll have a chance to check in with Herb Judah Michelle up at Hask as we get ready for Sunday for Hask Experience Day. You're all invited to Parksville on Sunday to see Camp Hask in action. We're going to broadcast from there in the morning on Sunday. And that show that we do Sunday morning 
will be the Monday morning JM in the AM. So when you tune in on Monday, uh, that will be the three hours that we spent at Camp Hask the day before on Sunday at Hask Experience Day. So those are some programming notes. We will continue with uh, Kinnis, Rabbi Beryl Wine's lecture series, information about his lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, and RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Recited in certain communities in the world, they never achieved the popularity that Revolosar Akalir did. Now, who is Revolosar Akalir? So, like all things in the Jewish world, there are different opinions. Tosfos mentions that Revolosar Akalir was the Tano Revolosar Shimon, the son of Rabshim ben Yochoi which would uh, date him very early, date him back to uh, uh, the second century before the com- at the second century after the common era, and also would give him a stature of being a Tana. However, uh, most of the other uh, uh, scholars and commentators uh, say that uh, Rabloza Khalir is not the Tana of Rabloza but rather he is a uh, Babylonian or Balkan Jew uh, who lived in probably the 7th or 8th century and wrote those poems. Now, Rebelozer HaKalir takes great liberty with the Hebrew language. The Hebrew language, as you know, is a very sparse language. It has... uh, very small base of vocabulary. That's why, for instance, in modern Hebrew, we have to import so many words because the language is in the English, for instance, is an enormously rich language in terms of words and synonyms. But Hebrew is very tight, very small based. So what he did is he took nouns and he uh, made them into verbs. He took verbs and made them into nouns. He has a famous statement of one of his poems, Admon Kibot. Now that's a, we say that on Yom Kippur, this poem. Admon, the red one, meaning Esau, Kibot, when he looked, when he looked to see Yaakov's family and his wives and his children attempted to give them the evil eye, so to speak. Now, so the Admon is an invention of his. Bought is certainly an invention of his. There's no Hebrew word bought. But because of the poetic structure, he, to keep the meter, to keep the rhyme, so he took liberties with the language. Because of the fact that he took liberties with the language, uh, Rabbeinu Avrom Ibn Ezra, who was a poet in his own right, uh, and a critic, in his commentary to Kohelis, towards the end of the uh, fourth chapter, beginning of the fifth chapter, or maybe it's towards the end of the fifth chapter, he takes on Revolosar Khalir head on. And he says, uh, really, uh, very negative things about his poetry. 
how he took those liberties with the old language. But uh, history voted for Ebelezer HaKalir. The Jewish people took his poems and inserted them everywhere in their ritual service. And uh, therefore, in the book of Kinot, which has, I think, 52 poems, uh, 27 or 28 are from him. The first 21 in a row are his. And the style of the uh, poems uh, is to take verses from the book of Echa itself, and to build the poem, in other words, the verse becomes the refrain in the poem. Now, Ebelezer HaKalir uh, was a master of uh, knowing uh, Talmud and Midrash, so therefore you have to be a London to be able to figure out his poem. And it's not easy to do so. And in fact... Uh, there are certain riddles in his poems that have remained unsolved until today. Just as there is a famous riddle, that's another thing that was in the Jewish world, is that people wrote riddles, and you have to figure it out. So there's a riddle in the introduction of the Eben Ezra to Chumash Breshes uh, that for uh, the last thousand years almost, People are trying to figure out what the answer to the riddle is, and no one has ever come up with the answer yet. It's like that math problem. What? There's a famous math problem for which no one. There's a prize of millions of dollars if you can figure out the. There's more money if you can figure out where Saddam Hussein is, but the. Uh, but there is a prize for. Uh, for solving this math problem. So there are riddles, uh, you know. So again, it looks to us bizarre. I mean, in the, you know, none of uh, none of our scholars today uh, occupy themselves with such things. But again, in the Middle Ages and the pre-Middle Ages, uh, this was common. It was intellectual exercise. It was the spirit of the times. And the Jews always were swayed by whatever the spirit of the times was, at least culturally. So you have here this bulk of Kinos of Rebelozer HaKalir. The bulk of Kinos is built upon uh, the book of Eicha. And almost every Kino uses uh, a verse from Eicha as being a uh, refrain a base for uh, for the poetry that follows. Now, what's interesting in the keynote of, uh, is that uh, the expression of sorrow uh, is always uh, intense and personal. It's almost written in first person, second person. It's not something that happened to Jewish people. It's something that happened to me. And that is how the author portrays it. That's how the poet portrays it. Because we all know that uh, we somehow are able to be sanguine about other people's troubles, God forbid. But if God forbid we have troubles, so then we're a little more uh, focused. 
That's what they say, you know, the difference between minor surgery and major surgery is that if it's you, it's minor surgery, and if it's me, it's major surgery. In the uh, keynote, uh, the day of Tisha B'Av has been a sad day for the Jewish people, generally. Uh, The first uh, Tisha B'Av was in the desert when they left Egypt. Uh, When the Meraglim came back, the spies came back and gave the negative report regarding the land of Israel. So it says, And that night did the Jewish people weep. They said, Where are you taking us? We're going to die. Our enemies will overwhelm us. It's suicidal for us to go to Israel. He took us out of Egypt to die here in the desert. So they wept. So the Medrash says, the famous Medrash, uh, you weep tonight really for no reason, but I will give you reason throughout history to weep on this night. So uh, the first Tisha B'Av is in the desert. The first temple is destroyed on the ninth of Av. The second temple began burning in the late afternoon of the ninth of Av and burned throughout the tenth of Av. So the Gemara says, Rabbi Yochanan said that I would have decreed to fast on the 10th of all. But that would have been uh, asking too much of the people to have to fast two days consecutively. And since the 9th of all was established already, so we fast on the 9th of all because uh, the beginning of the Churban is the 9th of all. The city of Betar, which was the last stronghold of Bar Kokhba and his rebellion, fell on Tisha B'av to the Romans in the year 139. And that marked the end of the rebellion. The Romans slaughtered the uh, inhabitants of the city. Uh, so the 9th of August has always been a uh, black letter day on the Jewish calendar. In 1492, the expulsion of the Jews from Spain, the last days to leave, fell on the 9th of August. It's interesting, Columbus set, set, set sail, for the, attempted to set sail for the New World on the 9th of August. But he was unable to clear the harbor because of the mass of ships carrying Jews away. So he had to wait till the traffic, the harbor master would would allow him to go. Just as an aside, Columbus's voyage was financed by Jews. Abraham Senor was one of the wealthiest Jews in Spain. So uh, there's an irony in the, in the ninth of all, at least as far as the Jewish people are concerned. Because when he set sail... Uh, 511 years ago, uh, no one imagined that continent and the country that he would discover would one day be a haven for the Jewish people in another time of terrible events. Uh, First World War uh, began its hostilities around the 9th of August. It was never a good time for us. Therefore, in the keynote, are uh, poems, elegies, weeping about other events than the destruction of the temple itself. There 
is a long poem uh, written about the Crusades, the destruction of the Jewish communities of spires and worms and mines in 1096 by the First Crusade. Uh, there is a long poem written by the Maram of Rutenberg, the mayor of Rutenberg, who is the uh, teacher and rebbe of the Rosh, of Rabbi Osher, one of the great men of Ashkenazic Jewry, uh, regarding the fact that the uh, king of France, Louis IX, in 1240, uh, burned all of the copies of the Talmud that were extant in France uh, in the courtyard of the Louvre, you know where the new pyramid is today, the new museum of the Louvre. So right there is where all of the uh, books of the Talmud scrolls were gathered and burned. That really marked the end of Jewish France, and then the Jews were expelled. And uh, all the yeshivas closed, and they had the balitosis, etc., and they moved east to Germany and Bohemia and eventually to Poland. And the story about the burning of the books uh, is also instructive uh, because it speaks to zealotry, which is a very uh, combustible, volatile uh, emotion in the Jewish world. Uh, after the Rambam died, there were those who objected strongly uh, to ideas and works uh, that he had written. Uh, they objected to the Sefer Hamada, uh, which is the first section of the Yorachazoka, the Mishnah Torah, because of its philosophic, rational bent. And they objected to the things that he said in the morning of Uchim, the guide to the perplexed. And uh, there, were, there raged a cultural war for about 150 years uh, regarding the books of the Rambam. The Rambam's greatest defenders lived in Provence, in southern France, and his greatest detractors lived in Provence. And uh, as unfortunately usually happens when it comes to matters such as this, banning books, uh, disagreeing with people, calling other people and not the chorus, so things get out of hand. Not only do they get out of hand, then it becomes almost a religious duty to be an idiot. And what happened was uh, that uh, certain zealots uh, went to the church and informed the church that the books of the Rambam were strongly anti-Christian. Not only anti-Christian, but that they were uh, insulting and mocking to Christianity. And the church therefore ordered uh, that the books of the Rambam be burned. In Montpellier and other places in Provence. And the zealots rejoiced in the fact that the books were to be burned. But then uh, when the Talmud was burned, uh, not long thereafter, 
so that many of the rabbis said, you see that in heaven they voted for the Rambam. And in effect, uh, once you start to burn books, so, uh, you know, once you tell the church that it's, the Jews are happy for you to burn their books, so then they burn other books too. Who's going to draw the line? A famous uh, story about the great Rabbeinu Yonah, Ibn Gerundi, from Girona. So Rabbeinu Yonah originally was one of the strong opponents of the Rambam. And he uh, was a gifted orator. He traveled to many towns and cities in northern Spain and southern France, Provence, and to speak against the Rambam's works. After the books of the Rambam were burned, and after the Talmud was burned, he regretted his behavior. He went back to every city that he spoke in, and he mounted the pulpit and said, I was wrong. I should never have done so. And as a further act of penance, he wrote what is one of the great books of Musser, philosophy, uh, Jewish uh, thought, called Shari Tshuva, the Gates of Repentance. So uh, that whole uh, incident in Jewish history, it's an incident that covers almost 150 years and involves a lot of great men. The, the Ramban, for instance, was the Rambam's great defender. The Ritva was the Rambam's great defender. But uh, there were great men on the other side, too. The Adramar of Meir Aledi Avalafia uh, was a strong critic of the Rambam. The Rambam himself expected it to happen. He writes in his, he writes a letter in which he says that he, I have no doubt that all of this will be controversial and that uh, people will call me all sorts of names, etc. But he said, when it all will settle down after a generation or two, he says it so uh, strongly. He says when the jealousies and pettinesses will disappear, because they'll all be dead. So he said, then history will judge me, judge my works. And he uh, certainly hit the nail on the head. And history has certainly voted for the Ramba. So we have this Kina. Of a mayor of Rottenburg, it begins, Shali Srufobaich, you are burned in the fire. So many people think that it refers to the temple that was burned in the fire. He's not talking about the temple. That wasn't written. It was written about the Torah that was written, the, the books of the Balitosvis, all the scrolls of the Talmud that were burned. So you have a keynote for that also. In the Sephardic set of keynote, we have keynote for the expulsion from Spain, which uh, probably until the Holocaust was the most traumatic event in the history of the Jewish people, the exile. Jews were in Spain from the 600s, so they were there 800 years. Not only the Jews were there, they were they were the country. I mean, they were the commerce and the government and the poetry and the, the, the culture, everything. 
couldn't think that there would be a Spain without Jews. And the Jews were Spanish to the core. You know, so if you live in a place for 800 years, you think you're going to live there forever, right? But apparently nothing is forever. The Jews lived in Poland for 800 years also, and that also didn't last. And what are we were in North America about 150 years, so it's young yet. Even though the Jews in America are convinced that it's also forever. Please get a call from the uh, certain community, which I will not name, uh, that they're celebrating their centennial. 100 years in the country. And they're having a big celebration. They invited me to come to be one of the speakers for their uh, events. And then uh, the man ruefully said, you better come this time because I don't know if 100 years from now there will be another one. So there is uh, a certain sensation of the fact that it may not be forever. But the Jews were in Spain, it was going to be forever, and then they were driven out. So they're in the Sephardic, uh, you know, uh, that exists. We have, uh, there was a great Spanish Jewish poet by the name of Rav Shlomo Ibn Gabiro. Shlomo Ibn Gabiro, so we have Kino from him, but the Sephardim have many from him. He was enormously prolific. He also wrote a great deal of secular poetry. Uh, and uh, he wrote a poem that's called Keter Malchut, the crown of royalty. The poem has uh, 99 stanzas to it. It's magnificent in its praise of God. The entire poem is devoted to how a person should serve God. The Sephardim read that poem on the night of Kol Nidre as part of the service. It's like a little book. Uh, Moser Cook published it as a little book. It's just absolutely magnificent. And so he has Kinos also. Sephardim have many more of his kinos in their uh, liturgy than the Ashkenazim do, but we have also his poems in our keynote. And then we have the poems of Rabbi Yudah Alevi, whom I mentioned before. So his famous kino begins, Tzion alo sishali l'shom asiraya. And uh, that poem was uh, so uh, overwhelming in its beauty and so influential that it spawned the genre of poems that begin Tzio. And they all attempted to copy his meter and his rhyme and his style. Uh, But uh, in terms of pure genius and poetry, uh, we cannot find an equal to that poem of Tzion, of Rabbi Alevi. And there he has the famous phrase, Ani chinor l'chol shirayich, I am the uh, harp upon which all of your songs can be played. 
and that was taken and inserted in the uh, Hebrew song, Yerushalayim Shel Zahav, which was the song of the Six-Day War. Yudha Alevi longed his entire life to come to Zion, and he eventually forsook Spain and all of its wealth. He writes, Libi b'Mizrach, ani b'Sof Mara. My heart is in the east, and I'm at the end all the way in the west of the Mediterranean. He said, until my heart and I can come together, how, what kind of life can it be? And Rabbi Alevi comes eventually to the land of Israel. He leaves his family, he leaves his wealth, his position. And he comes to the land of Israel. What happens to him here is unknown. There's a legend that he was killed at the gates of Jerusalem by an Arab horseman. That's a legend. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know where he's buried here. God does certain people a favor that he doesn't allow their burial place to be known. Moshe is a prime example of that. Because otherwise they'd be selling Coca-Cola there. Right? Souvenirs. Get a camel ride. You know, for a long time, the Jewish people weren't into graves. Today, graves is a big business. So, where Vira Levi's grave is, where the Ramban's grave is in this country, no one knows. But he died here, and he became the symbol not only because of his beautiful poetry his talent, his creativity. Uh, but he also became the symbol of the Jewish longing for the land of Israel. That the Jews would never give up on their right to the land of Israel and the fact that they would eventually gather the exiles and return to the land of Israel. They would rebuild themselves in the land of Israel. So Rebuna Levi became, so to speak, our spokesman for that. One that uh, throughout the ages, uh, his song, his poetry reverberated with that idea. And in this kina of Tzion Alosishali, uh, so to speak, everything that can be said about Jewish revival in the land of Israel is said in that poem. Like when you're done with the poem, so there's nothing more to say. Uh, the vision is laid out uh, beautifully, clearly, definitively. And uh, therefore, this poem was more than an elegy, it was an inspiration. And in the order of the keynote, therefore, they put it in the uh, last third, it begins the last third of the recitation of the keynote, because at, at the end, so to speak, we're looking for an upbeat. Even the keynote, uh, even Eicha is not allowed to end on a depressing note. So we repeat the posseg again, as we learned last week. God, bring us back again. So the keynotes also don't end on a downbeat, but they end rather on a note of hope uh, that the Jewish people both individually and collectively, uh, will yet be privileged to see better days.
the form, uh, the book of Kinot as we have today, was pretty much sealed by the 15th century. So the later troubles are not reflected. We have no uh, particular Kino, for instance, for the disasters of 1648 and 1649, the pogroms in uh, Eastern Europe, uh, Kozak-Ukrainian rebellion, which uh, cost hundreds of thousands of Jewish lives. In its time, it was the Holocaust. Relative to population, it was the ratio of the Holocaust. Almost. But we have no uh, no mention of it in the keynote. Uh, the rabbis made a special fast day in memory of it, the 20th day of Sivan. The 20th day of Sivan in the Middle Ages was a fast day over Jews in the city of Trier uh, that were uh, accused of uh, the blood libel and of desecrating the host, all of the uh, Christian accusations in the Middle Ages, and 13 Jews were slaughtered. And so they, for 13 Jews, the rabbis declared a fast day. Today, 13 Jews is a small change. It isn't even one bus. And uh, the, uh, the rabbis tacked on to the 20th of Sivan, therefore, the commemoration of the uh, pogroms of Khmelnytsky, the Ukrainian rebellion, etc. But we have no kina for it. And uh, except for people that read history books, uh, it's unknown, even in the Torah world, which is uh, really a sad note. No kino for the First World War, which uh, also uh, took at least a million Jewish lives. First of all, Jews fought on both sides in the armies. Jews fought the Austrian and Hungarian army and the German army, and Jews fought in the French army and in the Russian army in the British Army, and eventually in the Army of the United States. But aside from that, you had a tremendous dislocation of the Jewish community in Eastern Europe because the war was fought basically in Jewish territory. And uh, so you had refugees, malnutrition, there are all the good things that come with war. And then to top it all off, then you had the Communist Revolution. So that was a tremendous disaster. But we have no kino for that either. Now regarding the Holocaust, the Shoah of the Second World War, so we have no official kino. But a number of keynotes have been written. One was written by Rabbi Schwab of the uh, German community in Washington Heights in New York. One was written by the Boba Rebbe in Brooklyn. One was written by the Kloisenberger Rebbe here of Natanya. And there have been a number written by Israeli Rabbonim. And there are certain kihilot, there are certain congregations that recite these keynote regarding the Shoah, one of the great tragedies of the Shoah 
is the fact that we have found no effective way to commemorate it. In Jewish life, anything that is not connected with halacha becomes a sterile commemoration. It loses. We're able to commemorate our exodus from Egypt because we have a Seder. We have halacha, you know, and how to run it, and the mitzvot, and everything, so it's alive. But things that are not encompassed in halacha, that have no ritual, so to speak, so then it becomes very difficult to commemorate. So whether standing silent for a minute will preserve the memory of the Shoah, I have my doubts. Though I do stand silent when a siren rings. It's no more than courtesy. But whether that, or whether museums or anything else can do it. Books, films, Schindler's List. Those are all attempts somehow to preserve the memory. But we see that memory fades. No shortage of Holocaust deniers. And there's no shortage of Holocaust forgetters. So uh, the absence of, you know, an accepted official kina that would be read by the entire Jewish community and would become part of the book of Kinah is certainly felt. That absence is a difficult, difficult thing to deal with because of the fact that, uh, therefore, we, so to speak, abdicate the matter uh, to all sorts of other commemorations, uh, which uh, may not stand the test of time. The uh, Book of Kinot and the Sefer Eicha, the Megillah of Eicha, have withstood almost uh, 2,000 years of time, which itself is a miracle. I don't know. Uh, it's it's part, of, part of the tragedy of the Holocaust is that there was no one left to mourn it. It was so uh, enormous in its dimensions that no one could encompass it. And we will pay the price of the Holocaust for uh, generations and generations because of what we are missing because those people were killed. So that somehow should also be involved in the Tishabov mix of the uh, troubles and travails of the Jewish people. But the keynote, the end on uh, on an optimistic note, as I mentioned before, we get up off the floor. We say that there will be a better day. In our time, we have lived to see a better day. No one would have believed even 60 years ago that the Jewish world could look the way it looks today. That Torah could have been rebuilt as it has been rebuilt. And that there could be a Jewish state. That there'd be five and a half million Jews living in the land of Israel. Uh, that the Jewish community would be as influential and affluent as it is, thank God. So, uh, it's not been without progress. 
but it's been a great cost and a great sadness and a great sacrifice. And Tisha B'Av encompasses within it uh, encompasses within it all of those things. What was, what is, and what will be. And if we see it in that sense, so then the recitation of the keynote uh, can have a relevance to us uh, far greater than just memorializing what happened uh, over 1900 years ago. This concludes this lecture by Rabbi Beryl Wine. J.M. in the A.M. on a uh, Thursday morning Tish above. Thank you to all of you for tuning in. My thanks again to Rabbi Wine. It has been another stellar nine days period of spoken word uh, format here at JM in the AM because of his brilliant lectures, those of you who'd like to explore. And we recommend you do explore his uh, weekly offerings, his Divrei Torah, and of course his lectures. Go to 1-800, or call rather, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. For information about his lectures, and he should, the Rabbi Wine should continue strong. We should be able to um, continue providing his lectures in our spoken word format as long as our spoken word format is necessary. Hopefully, by next year, it won't be necessary anymore. Programming notes uh, starting tonight, uh, midnight, we'll present the uh, Erev Shabbos show hosted by Mark Zamek and uh, brought to you by the wonderful people at Kedem. Again, that's going to be tonight, midnight, 7 a.m. in Israel. So those of you who are in Israel have a unique opportunity early Friday morning to hear an amazing show. So midnight tonight, 3 a.m. and 10 a.m. tomorrow. Uh, the Erev Shabbos show with Mark Zamek presented by Kedem. Uh, over 100 songs having to do with Nachamu, this week's Parsha, this week's Haftorah, this period of time. Make sure to be tuned in. Uh, those of you who listen to the Arab Shabbos show on 24-6, it will be uploaded before the end of the fast on 24-6. Again, those of you who listen to the Arab Shabbos show on 24-6, it will be uploaded before the end of the fast on 24-6. Tomorrow morning, it is Arab Shabbos Nachamu. Malcolm Holmline will join us for the weekly update starting at 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time. Tomorrow is Shabbos Nachamu, or I should say Arab Shabbos Nachamu. Again, Malcolm Holmline, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time. We'll check in with our friends at Camp Hask as we get ready for Sunday. Hask Experience Day is Sunday. In addition to our broadcast from there, uh, you'll be able to enjoy a Joey Newcomb Baruch Levine concert if you come and uh, spend some time in Parksville between 10 and 2 this coming Sunday for Hask Experience Day. Um, the Monday morning show that you will hear on JM and the AM, the Monday morning show meaning Monday the, let's see, today's the 27th, the 31st, Monday the 31st of, um, of July, that will be our visit to Hask this coming Sunday. All right, so those of you who uh, tune in on Monday morning, that show, the 31st of July, is going to be our visit to Camp Hask from uh, this coming Sunday's Experience Day. Um, trying to think what else. A reminder that uh, today the um, what used to be Mincha at the Isaiah Wall has turned into since COVID has turned into a virtual Mincha get together. Plus, of course, some 
great guest speakers as well. Um, so those of you who are uh, available this afternoon, there'll be Mincha from the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale at 145, and then at 245, the speakers include Milech Shechet, the Tzadik of Lviv, famed Nazi hunter, Ephraim Zuroff, Ethiopian jury activist Jeremy Fite, who's just back from Ethiopia, Rabbi Avi Weiss, CUNY faculty activist Professor Azriel Ginak. They'll all be together on Zoom for the 46th annual Mincha and Speakers program dedicated to Israel and Jews in danger worldwide. Those of you who want the Zoom meeting ID, you can um, email me, nachum at nachumsegel.com, or you can speak with Glenn Richter at 212 Six six three five seven eight four two one two six six three five seven eight four. So that's the um, that is the mincha service that we traditionally attended at uh, Kotel Yeshayahu at the Isaiah Wall in Manhattan across from the UN. But now it's a virtual program for the last four years, uh, including this year. So again, feel free to email me for information about it, Nahum and NahumSiegel.com, or to call Glenn Richter and to get all the latest info. Um, all right, so that's the story. Uh, working backwards, Monday it'll be our show from Hask. Uh, Sunday we're at Hask Experience Day. Uh, tomorrow, Friday, Malcolm Honline, Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents at 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time. And um, for the weekly update. And uh, tonight, starting at midnight, the Erev Shabbat Show with Mark Zamek, presented by our wonderful friends at Kedem. That's tonight at midnight Eastern Time, tomorrow at 3 a.m. and 10 a.m. Eastern Time. A reminder for our friends in Israel, it's a unique opportunity to hear the Erev Shabbat Show with over 100 songs for this week um, at 7 a.m. your time, because it's midnight tonight. And those of you who listen to the Erev Shabbat Show on 24-6, it'll be uploaded before the fast ends tonight. Achenu Yisrael and Achim Achem, our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program, heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web, and AchimSegal.com, on the AchimSegal Network, and of course, on the beloved NSN app. And that wraps up our Tisha B'Av morning. Remember, we do not eat or drink today. We don't wash the way we normally do. Uh, we don't wear leather shoes. All these restrictions will hope, hopefully keep the... the uh, atmosphere of mourning and sadness with us throughout the day um and i hope everyone has an easy and meaningful fast and we'll gather tomorrow morning on erev shabbos nachamu right here at jm in the am have an easy fast till tomorrow nachamu reminding you remember the past live the present and trust the future